It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 18 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, June the 15th. First, I talk to Trevor Townsend, who runs Startup Bootcamp, an accelerator for startups. It operates globally and does some important work. And then I talk to economist Stephen Kakoulis, analysing Australia's latest growth figures. Are they as good as they're cracked up to be? But first, let's talk to Trevor Townsend. Trevor Townsend, you've been involved in technology companies for many years now. Tell us about it. Yeah, probably far too many years. Um, Yeah, look, I started out uh, working in a computer operations area, actually, uh, way, way back for Department of Aviation, and then found myself at National Australia Bank uh, in the institutional banking area, uh, where I worked on some uh, fin- financial products, things called forward rate agreements and swaps, so what we call derivative contracts. And I started programming there or working with those. And um, from there, my career grew into uh, project management and uh, management of large projects. And I finished up at National Australia Bank uh, running the digitization of their trading room, moving from the analog into the digital world. And through that, I met a US startup called Tipco, uh, who was very early stage, and I was fortunate enough to be able to join them. 
Um, had a great career with them, ended up running Asia for them. Uh, we IPO'd on NASDAQ. And, um, yeah, from there, it's been sort of a great ride on technology and, uh, and uh, you know, helping people use technology. So tell us about Startup Bootcamp. This is global, isn't it? Yeah, Startup Bootcamp's a global company founded in 2010 in, in Europe, in Copenhagen. Um, the company was founded to help founders, startup founders, scale their businesses. So generally... Most of the people who run programs at Startup Bootcamp are entrepreneurs themselves, have run businesses, um, have started businesses mainly in the tech space Mm -hmm. and are very interested now in helping others do the same. There's a big thrill when you start a company and get it going and to work with people who are doing that uh, every day is fantastic. So how does it work? So it works, um, we're a startup accelerator program. So what we do in a city, say like Melbourne, is we pick a theme that we're going out uh, to the market with. Here it was smart energy. Uh, We work um, in that market and we build an ecosystem of mentors, investors and corporates who are interested in that theme. Then we launch a program and when we launch, what we're doing is going out to the world to look for startups who are interested in working with us in a a location. Um, We spend about three months recruiting and um, touch about 2,000, 3,000 startups electronically during that period. And then we go out to the world and we meet three or 400 of them face-to-face, interview them all, and they interview us. And we work out from that who are the startups who will join the program. So how does the recruitment process work? How do you recruit startups that are suited for Startup Bootcamp? So we start with our corporate partners. So they drive us in terms of the themes that we're looking for because what we're trying to do is connect the startups uh, with corporates um, and being able to create projects in those corporates. And that may be servicing a need that the corporate has, but it also might be servicing the corporate's customers directly. And we're using the corporate as a way of getting to a customer set quickly or to gain insights about a particular customer set. So we're looking for disruption. So normally we're looking at what they call Horizon 2 or, or Horizon 3 um, disruptions or technologies. So that's not technology you can just go out and buy in the marketplace. Hence, we're looking for startups who are early stage who might be doing the next best thing in AI, machine learning, uh, blockchain, uh, augmented reality, customer service, those sort of things. So what we do is we ask our corporate partners what are the horizons um, that they're looking at? What are the problems that are intractable or where they see the opportunities and threats in the future? Then we engage with the startup community globally and we look for startups who meet, who meet those themes. Um, and we ma- mainly do that for our own growth hacking techniques. So we go out and we use a lot of uh, robotics ourselves, which we've built, to go out and pull together data looking for new companies that have emerged over the last 12, 18, 24 months. We get in contact with those companies and then we start a conversation. Um, and then once we have a conversation going, we get our analysts, which we call our scouts, to start talking to them about potentially coming on the program. Myself and my business partner, we then travel the world. Uh, For the last program, we visited 28 cities, uh, met over 300 people face-to-face. And in those events, we call them fast tracks, we essentially interview all the startups. The startups interview us about the program. 
and we work out from that um, the top 20 startups which we invite to Melbourne for what we call our selection days. So it narrows it down to about 20. Well, 20 is our, our first, uh, our cut, and the 20 come to Melbourne, and from that we select 10. So from about 2,000, we get down to 20, and then from ten, 20, we get down to 10 who join the program. So a very, very selective uh, program. And, you know, we're looking at two things there. We're looking at people who have interesting technology or interesting business model uh, that may apply here and also may be globally, um, globally uh, applicable. And then secondly and most importantly, once we know that they're in the right area from a technology and business point of view, we look at the team. So for us, selecting the right team is m- more important than selecting someone who's perfected their technology today. So what goes into a good team for a startup? So a good team is really a combination of the founder's skills. So if we have two or three founders, we do some facet five testing to see whether or not they have a range of different personalities so that they're covering off all the different things you need to do in a business. So that may be someone could be highly visionary but lack attention to detail. Somebody else may have a strong... Um, attention to detail but may not be such a visionary so we look at the team and we see whether or not the all the attributes that you need are covered across the team members we then also look at the past um, achievements of the people in the team so we're looking for demonstrations of resilience um, and things of things like that get up and go being able to see a problem through, a project through to the end. You know, it's very, very hard to run a startup and be a startup founder and you need somebody who, you know, will get up um, for the 90 times they're knocked down uh, for the 10 times that they might, um, you know, move forward. So you're looking for personality types and you're looking for combinations of skills. Yeah, well, we're looking for combinations of personality type too, you know, and skills. So, you know, to make sure that we've got, you know, people... Who, who and a team that is well rounded, uh, so that so that they can cope with all the challenges that will be in front of them. So, so tell us about some of the startups that you've nurtured. So in our large, last batch of startups, um, we had seven from offshore and three uh, local startups. Um, so we had a range of different uh, technologies uh, involved. So in things like um, energy efficiency. A uh, great startup from India, Energy Tech Ventures, who were the only startup we found in the world that were taking an API approach to energy analytics, and we think that there's great um, a great uh, market for that software going forward. Local startups like Savvy BI, who are helping energy users, that's <coughs> uh, uh, con- con- um, commercial and industrial users with better understanding their energy usage. We had two big hardware companies, one Oxto, who makes a grid-level flywheel, which is solves the problem around grid stabilisation uh, with a lot of the renewables in the um, market, and Uprise Energy, who've got a fantastic portable wind turbine that operates at low wind speed. And that is ideal for things like remote communities, defence, mining, um, and situations like that. We also had an AI company, Cognitum, out of Poland. They're doing some really, really interesting things, and um, I think they've got a great future as well. 
So all of these startups are actually making a difference to the world. Oh, absolutely. We have a clean energy focus and, um, you know, we're going through a clean energy transition uh, and we see that in the marketplace here in Australia. I mean, energy is on the front page of the newspapers uh, nearly every second or or third day. Uh, There's a lot of grid instability and things of that nature brought about by the large number of PV uh, solar panels that have been installed into the market and the market is in a, in a state of flux. We have a market model that was set up uh, for a hierarchical um, energy market where the generators generated power and bid into the market to do so. That was pushed out through the transmission lines, through the distributors, down to the businesses and households. Now, so much of the energy is actually getting produced in the network. Um, The network was never designed to do that. The market model was never designed uh, for that. So these all cause opportunities, opportunities for change, uh, for looking at different ways to do things. I have to ask you finally, what's the next stage of Startup Bootcamp? Well, just today um, we had our first session on themes for, for next year's program for energy. Um, we're really quite excited about um, you know some of the, the the next step that we're looking for, particularly around the customer engagement side of things. So that will be quite interesting how we see that uh, that moving forward. Uh, Startup Bootcamp. We're also launching a fintech program, uh, focusing that on financial health and well-being, and we're doing that in conjunction with some of the local banks, insurance companies, and superannuation. Our companies here here in Melbourne. Uh, next year, we're growing again. We'll have another two programs up and running, which means that we'll be bringing something like 40 new startups into the market each year. Trevor Townsend, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Leon. And now let's hear from economist Stephen Kakoulis. Stephen Kakoulis, last week's... Uh GDP figures of uh, 3.1% was hailed as an economic miracle. Uh, Three months ago, we were told the economy's annual growth was a pathetic 2.4%. And now we're told it's a very healthy 3.1%. And uh, the government's saying it's a vindication of everything Scott Morrison's told us. Uh, But my problem is that for the last five years, my back-of-envelope calculations has it coming in at 2.4%. And... um, uh, how do you measure it from one quarter to the next? Yeah, look, quarter to quarter does jump around, of course. Yeah, you get inventories or net exports or a bit of consumer spending causing the, the quarter by quarter figure to jump. And the 3.1 was indeed welcome. Let's not um, downplay a little bit of good news when it does come through. But you're quite right. It's It did come after well, several years where growth has been below trend, let's say. But it does really just go to show that the... Uh, momentum in the economy just isn't particularly strong at the moment. Right. Uh, I mean, employment growth has been going quite well, but um, but that's all for 2017, and that's receding into history. And for the first four months of this year, I think the average rate of job creation has been slowing down. It has indeed, and I think this is the question that you know, we keep hearing uh, about the 400,000 jobs in 2017. Well, here we are in... June, we get the May employment numbers uh, this week, and already for the first four months of this year, you're quite right to note that employment has slowed, unemployment rate is ticking up, it's not increasing sharply, but it's going up, so there's this question emerging about the, uh, not just the GDP numbers, but what else is happening in the economy, so with the labour market, perhaps just 
plateauing or stalling or something like that. You've got evidence now that the housing market's cooling off. Prices in both uh, Sydney and Melbourne, the two big cities, are coming off the boil quite, quite noticeably. Auction clearance rates are down. And then you've got things like retail sales just continuing to muddle along while people don't get big wage increases. They can't spend an awful lot, and that's putting a, you know, a real constraint on the speed at which uh, people can spend. So, look, it's not that the economy's dreadful. It's not. It's, but it's certainly not strong either. And that's why the markets, if you like, are continuing to price in steady interest rates. You know, six months ago, they were pricing in two rate hikes by early 2019. Uh, now we don't even have one full rate hike priced in by the end of 2019. So there's all this change going on in the economy. We're not sure um, just this momentum uh, has been sustained. Yes, every bit of good the economic news is seemingly offset by something that's a bit less less good, if you know what I mean. Well, there, there are some worrying figures out there, like uh, business investment isn't that strong. And it's been very weak for many years, of course, mainly mining, of course, because the mining investment boom has come to an end. But the thing that's been the missing link for both RBA, Treasury and financial markets is that non-mining investment uh, has been... Well, it's turned the corner, but it's hardly strong again. And when you've got the consumer sector, the household sector being constrained in their spending by this very weak wages growth that we that we keep hearing about, house prices now falling, which is hurting the wealth effect, credit growth slowing, you, you need something else to pick up the momentum. And it's certainly not coming through CapEx or business investment, which yeah, needs to be really strong. And again, the question for the RBA is that with interest rates so very low, why isn't CapEx stronger, particularly in the non-mining sector? And that's really a bit of a dilemma, given that we've also got things like business confidence doing reasonably well. So it's a, it's a real um, um, mixed picture, that, that you know, as we were saying just a minute ago, that for every bit of good news is a bit of bad news, and then you get a turning point in one indicator and the other one turns down. So to get this sort of synchronised domestic um, economy picking up just seems to be... Um, uh, something that we haven't quite got yet. Well, there seem to be two issues here on the on the horizon. And first is the fall in housing prices, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. I think in Sydney they've fallen by 4.5%. Uh, Melbourne's down by 2%. And the other issue is flat wages growth. That's going nowhere. That's the thing. So, that, so they're the two things. So if you think about the household sector, you know, remembering that uh, the amount of money that you and I and everybody else spends in the economy the household sector, consumers, makes up approximately 60% of GDP. It's the, it's the biggest part of the economy by, by a long shot. And you think about, well, why do people spend more or spend less for that, for that matter? There's only three basic things that they can use to increase their expenditure. One is to get big wage increases. That's obvious. You spend more when you get more money. The other one is to borrow more money and use that to fund your consumption. And the other one is to run down your savings. So instead of saving, you know, 8 or 10% of your income, you save 2% of your income. Now, the funny thing about the numbers that have been coming out are that the, as you just mentioned, the wages growth is very low. So we're not going to ramp up our expenditure because we're all getting nice, big, healthy uh, wage increases. So you can rule that one out. The other one is debt and credit growth. Well, that's slowing quite markedly. So we're not really using credit to fund our expansion in spending. So that's another uh, constraint on why household spending is going to be relatively weak for a little bit longer. And then the other one, of course, is savings. And we saw that in the national accounts that the household saving rates dropped to a 10-year low of only just above 2%. 
Um, so we are already running down our savings to fund uh, consumption. So this question emerges uh, if we are to sort of look at the Treasury forecast at budget time or even the RBA forecasts and look for household spending growth to increase by 3% plus, it's just not going to happen until something gives. And that something has got to be, I think, wages because credit growth in a long-run trend-secular decline as housing slowing. Uh, so it has to be wages. But where are the wages increases coming from? They're just not coming through in, in any evidence that we're seeing in the hard data. And what about the, growth, the drop in house prices? How significant an issue is this? It's... Well, after they've increased by so much over the last decade, a little bit of a pullback's not only expected, but it's not yet, and I'll emphasise yet, a concern. Uh, if we were to see prices just drifting down another, you know, quarter to half a percent a month for the next 12 months, it probably wouldn't be a bad thing. The problem, of course, is that these sorts of um, big trends in the economy and housing markets tend to build their own momentum. And if we were to see bigger falls then given the leverage that we Australians have on our housing, not just the one that we live in, but investment properties, we've heard lots of stories about the 100% um, uh, interest-only loans and these sorts of things. And if you're rolling those over into, first of all, into interest plus principal, which is occurring, when prices are falling as well, so you're actually starting to get little evidence of um, negative equity, then, of course, you get all bets off, and that's when you get a concern. That's when banks continue to, to pare back their lending, consumers sort of shy away from borrowing even more money and you get into this, I won't call it a spiral, but you get into this problem where uh, continual growth is going to be very difficult to achieve. Right, okay, okay. And of course, uh, the drop in house prices means people are less likely to take out credit. Indeed. And in fact, that's right. So if houses aren't the sort of uh, whiz-bang investment, either for you to live in and upgrade your house or to actually buy an investment property, then you're just going to sit tight for a while. You'll look for something else to do with your money uh, or you'll actually start to reduce your debt levels because, as we mentioned, household debt is very high. So that's the big dilemma for the economy uh, in the second half of 2018 and probably into 2019. What's the source of growth? You know, we saw in the budget um, last month a quite upbeat forecast from Treasury and you know, far be it for us to quibble with Treasury forecasts, they're usually okay, but they're really banking on just about everything going right to achieve them. And um, they're really hoping that the global economy can provide some impetus. And even on that score, uh, you know, there's a little bit of um, uh, evidence that the Eurozone's cooling off. China's got some evidence that its momentum is not quite as strong as it was a couple of months ago. And of course, the US Fed, they're hiking interest rates. And by definition, that's causing their economy to have a little more downside than uh, upside if, as we look into 2019. So, you know, for everything to go right, it could happen. But I must say, I'm getting a little bit more concerned that um, there are a few, uh, few dark clouds on the horizon. So, in summary, you'd have to say that for us to see uh, there is a miracle going on, we'd have to see at least another substantial increase in GDP above 3% for the June yeah. quarter. Yeah, we need at least one. In fact, the funny thing about the annual growth rate is that you know, with a run rate with the four quarters, uh, the annual growth rate, we do have 1% dropping out of the year-on-year -year run rate when we get the June quarter numbers. So unless we can get 1% or more, the, the annual growth rate is going to slow. So just for example, if we were to say just get 07 for GDP in the June quarter when those numbers come out in early September, you're going to be seeing your annual um, growth rate drop to about 2.7%, 2.8%. Again, not bad, 
but it's not the sort of 3% plus that we need to see jobs growth pick up again, to see wages growth pick up, and, and that's the issue. The economy probably just isn't growing fast enough. So we have to see this consistently over several quarters? To... We need to see not, not just one quarter, one quarter is welcome, but just, you need to see it uh, quarter in, quarter out for the remainder of this year. You need to see you know, 0 0.91, 1.1 per quarter between now and uh, the end of the year, and only then I think we can, uh, as they say, break out the champagne and be confident the economy's finally got onto a stronger growth path. But I'd say that's a lower probability event, and more likely we're going to be seeing... 0.5, 0.6, on GDP. Doesn't sound like a big difference, but it's big enough just not to see that jobs growth to get that unemployment rate down to 5%. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. So what's happening in news? Well, the tense G7 summit turned into a G6 versus G1, with G7 leaders confronting Donald Trump on imports to sway his thinking, while the US president presented his own numbers and held to his position that the US was at a disadvantage on trade. Mr Trump ended up retracting his endorsement of a joint statement, which saw the major industrial nations, Canada, the US, the UK, France, Italy, Japan and Germany, agreeing on the need for free, fair and mutually beneficial trade, and the importance of fighting protectionism. The prospects of a trade war have increased, and the US and Canada are now close to a trade crisis with the survival of a North America free trade agreement at risk following the tense G7 meeting over the weekend. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow told ABC's This Week on Sunday that, quote, we were very close to making a deal with Canada on NAFTA, he said, before Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau criticised the US after the G7 meeting, drawing a rebuke from Trump. Kudlow also accused Mr Trudeau of betraying the US president with, in his words, polarising statements on trade policy, saying it risked Mr Trump looking weak in the lead-up to the historic North Korea summit. Donald Trump's trade adviser, Peter Navarro, told Fox News Sunday, quote, We'd have a great deal with NAFTA by now if the Canadians would spend more time at the bargaining table and less time lobbying Capitol Hill and our press and state governments here. Navarro also said, and I quote, there's a special place in hell for any foreign leader engaging in what he called bad faith diplomacy with Trump. Now, US President Donald Trump also fired off a string of angry tweets criticising America's closest allies hours after leaving the divisive G7 summit in Canada. Mr Trump said the US paid, in his words, close to the entire cost of NATO to help protect countries that, in his words, rip us off on fair trade. Fair trade is now to be called full trade, he added, in response to the threats of new tariffs against the US. The US actually contributes about a fifth of NATO's direct funding under a formula based on national income. Now, all of that saw IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde saying the risks to the global economy are rising as major industrial nations sharpen threats of a trade war. The clouds on the horizon that we have signalled about six months ago are getting darker by the day, and I was going to say by the weekend she told a news conference in Berlin on Monday. Now, AT&T has won approval from a US court to buy Time Warner for US $85 billion, that's $112 billion Aussie, allowing it to compete with internet companies that dominate digital advertising and providing new sources of revenue. 
The planned deal is seen as a turning point for a media industry that has been upended by companies like Netflix and Google that produce content and sell it online directly to consumers without requiring a pricey cable subscription. Distributors, including cable, satellite and wireless carriers, all see buying content companies as a way to add revenue. And to Australia. And business conditions here fell sharply in May, according to the National Australia Bank's monthly business survey. The headline conditions index, which is a composite measure of sales, profitability and employment intentions, fell six points to 15, pulling back from the record levels last seen a month ago. The positive reading indicates that a majority of firms surveyed believe the conditions have continued to improve in May, not just as many as it's in April. Business confidence also declined in May after hitting a recent high in January. It's now running close to a long-run average level. In trend terms, conditions are strongest in the mining sector, followed by finance, business and property, recreation and personal services, and transport and utilities. And despite the modest improvement in May, conditions in the retail sector remain the weakest across the nations. And the employment sub-index fell by five points to eight. Now, investor home loans in Australia dropped to a two-year low in April. Figures released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics show mortgage commitments to investors fell 0.9% in seasonally adjusted terms in April 2018 to $10.75 billion. That's down from $10.85 billion in March. This was the lowest level since January 2016. The number of loan commitments was down 1.4% seasonally adjusted. Owner-occupier borrowing was flat, rising 0.2%. Now, the figures show the proportion of borrowing by investors has fallen to a six-year low of 42%. That's the lowest since January 2012. The only segment of the market that grew during this period was first home buyers, with the number of first home buyers loans growing to 17.6% of all owner-occupied mortgages. That's up from 13.7% in January 2016. However, the number of loans to first-time buyers has fallen from its peak in November last year. Finance approvals for first-home buyers in New South Wales and Victoria are down 8% from November 2017. Lending standards are expected to tighten in the fallout from the Royal Commission into banking and financial services. Now, an estimated $20 billion of clients, funds and 30,000 customers could now be in limbo after financial planning group Dover Financial Advisors abruptly closed down just weeks after its owners collapsed while testifying at the Banking Royal Commission. The Melbourne-based company is one of the country's 10 largest financial planning businesses with more than 400 advisors and about 260 practices across the country. Dover Financial, based in the Melbourne suburb of Cheltenham, is one of the 10 biggest financial planning outfits in Australia. It has more than 400 planners operating under its licence around the country. An email Dover's owner Derry McMaster wrote to the company's network of planners on Friday told them to cease offering new advice immediately as the corporate watchdog was going to remove its licence, putting an estimated 50,000 clients in limbo. Now, Mr McMaster shot into the national spotlight recently when he collapsed under questioning from counsel assisting Mark Costello after Mr Costello had accused Mr McMaster of giving a misleading answer to the Hain Royal Commission into Financial Services. The email sent on Friday says Dover had agreed with the Australian Securities and Investments Commission on an orderly way to remove the company's licence that would mean advisors could not offer new service from Friday, June the 8th, and that all service has to cease by July the 6th. Now, Virgin Australia CEO John Borghetti 
has announced his departure after a decade with Australia's domestic airline. But he's not going right away. He's told the board of directors that he won't renew his contract post-January 2020. That gives plenty of time to find a replacement. And West Farmer's experiment in the hardware business in the UK, trying to replicate the success of its Bunnings chain in Australia, is finally over. The company announced the finalisation of the sale of its home-based business to a company associated with Hillco Capital, which specialises in distressed investments and corporate restructures. And the company announced, and I quote, West Farmers expects to record a loss on disposal of £200 million, that's £350 million Aussie, to £230 million in the group's 2018 financial results. The company bought the home-based chain of stores in January 2016 for around $705 million. It planned to rebrand Homebase as Bunnings as part of a strategy to expand its ultra-successful Australian hardware brand offshore. But the UK business struggled to take off, and West Farmers put the struggles down to poor execution and a weak macro environment as retail sales slumped in the UK. And finally... A consortium of power utilities and infrastructure companies led by Hong Kong-based investment and energy business CK Infrastructure, built by billionaire Li Ka-shing, has lobbed a $13 billion takeover of Australia's largest gas network operator, APA. In its statement to the market, APA said it had received an unsolicited takeover proposal from CK Infrastructure of $11 a share. This is a 33% premium to Tuesday's closing price. APA welcomed the offer. Based on the indicative price of $11 cash per staple security, the APA board considers that it's in the best interests of APA security holders to engage further with the consortium, APA said in the statement. Accordingly, APA has entered into the confidentiality agreement with CKI to allow it the opportunity to undertake due diligence on a non-exclusive basis. Now, other businesses associated with the offer are SK Asset Holding and Power Asset Holdings. Both are ultimately controlled by Li Ka-shing. The bid for APA means that CKI is expanding its footprint in Australia. It already has a controlling stake in South Australia's Esther business and in Victoria's two largest electricity companies, City Power and PowerCorp. And in 2017, CKI acquired the Duet Group's power lines, gas pipelines and power stations for $7.3 billion. Now, because the deal is likely to attract the attention of the Foreign Investment Review Board and the Australian Competition Consumer Commission, the consortium has informed APA that it's already had discussions with the ACCC and FIRB. It said it had told the ACCC it plans to divest the West Australian assets of APA's pipeline business. And that's it for this week. And next week, we have a terrific interview with Jonathan Rowley, who's the managing director and founder of online food ordering service, OrderIn. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 